Welcome to Full Scope, a weekly medical podcast designed to teach, inspire, and encourage listeners to question everything they know. I'm your host, Bill Brandenburg. The United States healthcare system sucks. It's not good. Why do I say that? Because the quality of care, the outcomes regarding health, quality of life, markers that patients actually care about are not delivered. American healthcare does not deliver people the quality care and the endpoints like a quality long life that they desire. On top of this, the prices that we charge to provide health care have spiraled out of control. We charge people an obscene amount of money for even basic care, much less specialty and advanced high-level care for things like cancer treatment. The only reason why American health care is even worth anything is because of the awesome frontline providers that work their butts off in spite of a crummy system every day. I'm talking about the physical therapists, occupational therapists, respiratory therapists, speech therapists, nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, physicians, and everyone else that works on the front line with patients, nutritionists, social workers. We all work our butts off in spite of a system that does not support us. When you take a system like American healthcare and you combine bad quality, bad delivery of the outcomes that matter to patients with obscenely high prices, what you get is a system that delivers very low value. The value that we offer people in the United States regarding health care is dismal. Today, we're going to focus on one part of that equation, and that is cancer care. Now, I have always had a bias against oncologists because I'm a hospitalist. I literally have cancer patients show up to me in the hospital extremely sick, septic as they say, with white blood cell counts that are non-existent. Their absolute neutrophil counts are less than 1,000, sometimes less than 500, sometimes even less than 100. They show up to me looking frail, cachectic, on death's doorstep, often having been chemotherapied into the ground, given chemo drugs that have literally made their bone marrow not work, not produce white blood cells, made it impossible for them to fight against infection, caused additional weight loss on top of cancer, additional problems. And so from my vantage point, I've always had a problem with oncologists. In fact, starting in medical school, I remember hearing all the time, 
Don't ever talk about prognosis with a cancer patient. Don't don't talk about that stuff until they've discussed it with the oncologist. This is what I see when I talk to my cancer patients. They come to me with metastatic cancers. Pick your cancer, lung, breast, prostate. It's all over their body. And they often seem to have no idea what their prognosis is. They don't know how much longer they're going to live, how well the treatment they're currently on is going to work, what the potential awful side effects of that treatment are. And I know that a lot of that is because patients don't listen and they hear what they want to hear. But I also think that we do a horrible job at telling patients the actual benefit of a given cancer drug. And we always have more drugs to offer them. There are literally binders full of research protocols for new drugs coming down the new drug development pipeline. So a lot of cancer doctors, oncologists, always have something to offer people. As long as they're walking and breathing and coming to the office, they're usually going to have something to offer at this point. The problem is that these things often hurt patients very badly, and they ruin the last few months that a given patient might have left. Those are my bias regarding cancer. I will say that cancer therapy, oncology has done some amazing things, but today we're not going to be highlighting those things. (laughs) Okay, there's this guy. His name is Vinay Prasad. He's a practicing hematology oncologist. He's an MD, MPH, and I think he works in Oregon, maybe Oregon Health Sciences. He's got a podcast, The Plenary Session. The first time I turned it on, I heard the guy bashing the New England Journal of Medicine, and in particular, the editor, who was, I think, another oncologist that was publishing papers about drugs that were not good, bad drugs. They didn't work. They cost a lot of money. Big problem. And he just basically tore into this guy. And the New England Journal was probably the most prestigious journal up until a few years ago when it kind of got attacked for being very in line with with businesses and pharmaceutical companies and, and kind of money, basically. And it's kind of fallen from favor and fallen from the top as a result of that. But I knew when I heard Dr. Prasad just talking a bunch of trash about the New England Journal that I liked this guy. I liked him a lot. I will say that his podcast, The Plenary Session, is very long, but often contains a lot of good information. I have trouble listening to all of them, but the stuff that I've listened to has been good. Recently, I brought his, bought his book. And he actually has a couple books, but this, uh, I think, newest one is called Malignant. Malignant. How bad policy and bad evidence harm people with cancer. And I read the book, and I just have to say, awesome piece of work. In fact, the first chapter was probably one of the best chapters I've ever read in a book. So I strongly encourage you to take a look at this book. 
But also, I just wanted to basically do a recap of the first chapter because it was so high yield and so beneficial. So here we go. The first chapter of Malignant covers several very important fundamental topics regarding cancer drugs. The first deals with the quality of the drugs produced. It then talks about the cost of those drugs. Talks about quality-adjusted life years as a way to quantify those costs in a value-based system. Talks about the cost of drug companies to uh, discover these medications, namely their R&D costs. And then finally, it discusses whether or not the price actually reflects the value of the drug. I don't think you're going to like what you're going to hear. To start this off, I want to highlight a great success story in cancer medicine. And that is a drug called imatinib. Imatinib is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. It blocks proteins called tyrosine kinases. Chronic myelogenous leukemia is often driven by an abnormal chromosome called the Philadelphia chromosome. And in this mutation, you've got a fusion of chromosome 22 and 9 at the gene BCR ABL, which is a tyrosine kinase. And basically, it turns on the kinase such that the cell just keeps reproducing and reproducing. Causes CML. Well, in 2001, when imatinib was dropped, it was really one of the first targeted cancer therapies. And in 98% of people receiving the drug with this Philadelphia chromosome, CML, there was a 98% complete hematological response. So people would go from elevated white blood cell counts to a normal level. Amazing. Before this drug, a 50-year-old with CML lived about 3.5 years. After this drug, they lived 27 years. Basically, they had a normal lifespan. When cancer drugs work, they can do amazing things. And I think the general sentiment after imatinib was produced in 2001 that a new era was starting in cancer medicine and that these targeted therapies were going to become the norm, and we were going to start curing cancer. Well, not quite. Let's start with the quality of recent cancer drugs produced. An analysis of 71 consecutive drugs approved in the United States by the FDA between 2002 in 2014 for solid tumors like breast and cancer found the average improvement in survival was 2.1 months. Yes, people, that is 2.1 months. This study was done by a group led by uh, Foho Edal, and literally the average extension in life for those 71 cancer drugs was 2.1 months. People got an extra two months of life. 
What is even sadder is that those 2.1 extra months were demonstrated under ideal conditions. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, drug companies pick and choose the studies that show the best results. Cancer drugs are all oftentimes added to a regimen of cancer drugs, often described by acronyms like CHOP, IFL, FOLFOX. For instance, they might test them in combination with several different drug regimens. And even though the standard treatment for, say, lung cancer might be a given regimen, they might test it in use with several regimens and report on the highest one, even though that's not even the one that's going to be used in actual treatment. I know that's kind of complex. The next thing is that there's oftentimes modeling studies which are used to approximate survival. The problem is that these modeling studies are oftentimes wrong or flawed. And when we actually go back and studying them uh, kind of through time and see what actually happens, those, those models can be incorrect. And the final biggest problem is that real-world patients are oftentimes much older and much sicker than the ideal candidates utilized in clinical trials. Dr. Prasad gives a good example of this, a drug, serafinib, for metastatic liver cancer. In the study, the control group lived 7.9 months. However, in a post-SEER Medicare analysis, and SEER is a database um, which stands for Surveillance, Epidemiology, and End Results, showed that people on serafinib only lived an average of three months. So they were living three months while the control group was living 7.9 drugs in the study. Something is wrong there. To give some more examples of how the study groups are often very different than the actual real-world populations, I'll give a couple stats mentioned in the book. 59% of cancer patients are 65 years and older. Whereas between 2007 and 2010, just 30% of individuals studied in cancer clinical trials were over 65. These trials also exclude patients with liver and kidney disease. That's a huge problem because a very large percent of the cancer population have those problems. This was looked at another way by Kaiser. They turned the equation around and looked at all their lung cancer patients and tried to figure out how much of them would actually meet criteria for enrollment in a clinical trial only 21% met criteria. So the studies that we're using are not even reflecting the actual patients that we're treating. And the studies are showing dismal benefit at baseline, two months of additional survival. Crazy. Dr. Prasad concludes by saying, if the goal of the U.S. drug regulation, the FDA that is, is to approve drugs that improve the health of Americans, then the current system is broken. So that's the first part of the equation, quality. Let's move on to cost. How much do these drugs cost? Because if they they work a little bit, but they're cheap, that's not a big problem. You know, two months could be worth it if if a drug's inexpensive. That's two months more of life. Let's look at the cost. In 2015... A new cancer drug was routinely priced 
at over $100,000 for a year of treatment. And we'll talk more about this, but that price had no relation to how well the drug worked or whether it was a novel mechanism. And I say novel, meaning does it have an entirely new mechanism or is it a part of a, a class of drugs that have already been developed and it's just kind of a new part of that group? For instance, a new statin medication as opposed to an entirely new mechanism to lower cholesterol. Looking at this globally, the cost of cancer drugs is over $100 billion annually. And of course, the U.S. accounts for about half of that spending. You know, 300 million people in the United States, 7 billion people worldwide, and we're paying half of that, that cost for cancer drugs. No surprise, though, really. How has this changed over time? In 1960, one month of cancer drug treatment cost about $100. Now, it costs about $10,000 a month. What's even worse is that competition in the cancer drug market seems to lead to increased prices. The reality is, is this is not actually a market. A good example is imatinib, the first drug that we talked about that actually works and works really well. The price of that drug between 2000 and 2014 was increased from 3500 to 8500 as more and more competition entered the market. It's like bizarro world. So, what does all this mean? New cancer drugs in the United States have horrible value. They have marginal benefit at best, and their costs are obscenely high. One way that we often measure value in healthcare is something called the quality adjusted life year. How many dollars would you have to spend to add one quality year of life? Now, if somebody has, say, cancer, that can't be counted as a full quality year of life, so you often have to add time to make that equation work. Say, one quality of adjusted life year for someone with cancer might be 18 months or, or whatever. Now, what value does the United States place on a quality adjusted life year? Well, historically, the number was 50,000. And I think that's just kind of what they picked. Nowadays, there are some papers arguing as much as 200,000. I think these are all ridiculous. I think the idea that a quality-adjusted life year is worth more than a healthy individual could make on average working in the United States is ridiculous. So I'm setting my quality-adjusted life year at $33,706 because that's how much the average individual that works makes in the United States. The idea that we should pay more for treatments for people to live another year that's more than people can actually make is not a balanced equation. So that's why I chose that number. What are these cancer drugs costing as far as quality-adjusted life years? Well, they're, of course, obscene. Nesitumab, sorry, the names are tough. Nesitumab, a lung cancer drug, 800000 for one quality-adjusted life year. Regorafa, a colon cancer drug, 900000 for quality-adjusted life year. Pertuzumab, 
breast cancer treatment. $470,000 for quality adjusted life here. And bevacizumab, a colon cancer drug, 570000 per quality adjusted life year. So matter, no matter what scale you're using, these cancer drugs are costing way, way more than any of the other numbers that people have thrown out for what we should pay for a quality adjusted life year. Okay, so that's the horrible value that we're getting from most of our cancer drugs. Um, but why? Why are they so expensive? Are these companies just greedy? Well, yes, they are just greedy. But let's break down some of the costs to, to actually show that. And the book does a really nice job of this, and I'll try and do my best to kind of cover the information covered in that first chapter. First, it's, it's notable that there's really two main types of cancer drugs. We have small molecules, which are produced via synthetic organic chemistry. And then we have monoclonal antibodies, which are kind of a newer type of medication that are a little bit more expensive to produce. But in general, the cost to actually make these things is less than 1% for small molecules and 1% to 5% for the cost of the monoclonal. So a very small fraction of the money charged is, is needed to actually build these things. Of course, there's other factors like running a business and business operations. But really, the, the place where drug companies say, we need to charge this much money because we need to make back the money that we spend in R&D. So it's really research and development costs that these companies are claiming is what is uh, requiring such high cost. Let's break down R&D costs. Uh, the, book, the book gives kind of three examples, and I want to talk about all three. The first example of how much it costs to bring a drug to market is a Tufts Center for Study on Drug Development, um, and the number that they came up with was $2.6 billion. $2.6 billion to bring one new drug to market. Now, this study has a lot of issues. The first one is that it was funded by the biopharmaceutical industry. And those people would like it to look as expensive as possible to bring a drug to market because it makes them look less bad when they charge a patient $100,000 a year for their drug. The next problem was that it was not transparent. We don't know what drugs and what companies were actually investigated. The final problem, and is a huge problem, is that $1.2 billion of this money was based on capital lost. And the number that they they put for interest a year was 10.5%. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're making 10.5% a year, year after year on your investments, you are crushing it. And so that's a huge amount of money to say that they lost in interest. And so basically the 2.6 billion is looking like it's probably coming out way too high. The next estimate was by a group called Public Citizen. They came up with a number of 320 million. There was definitely some limitations. Basically what they did is they used research and development costs divided by the number of new drugs over a period of time. And so the first thing is obviously you're looking at R&D for new drugs in the future and comparing that to drugs that have been rolled out from R&D in the past. And so it's not really time-wise works out perfectly. 
On top of that, they did include some expenses for drugs that were already approved, but were just kind of pushed through, I guess, the marketing. So maybe that one underestimates it a little bit. The final estimate was actually created by uh, Vinay Prasad and another one of his colleagues, another oncologist, Dr. Milan Cody. And they came up with $648 million. What they did was they examined all companies that brought a single drug to market over the last decade. They used publicly available securities and exchange filings. They came up with 10 companies that each launched one drug from a total of 43 compounds studied. So the failure rate was 77%, which is uh, about in line with uh, the normal failure rate for drugs, at least that make it to that stage in development. Uh, it took, on average, 7.3 years to bring a drug to market. This is in line with the normal quoted 6 to 15 years it takes. Half of these drugs were novel, meaning they had an entirely new mechanism, and half were new drugs of already established classes so-called me-too drugs, like we were saying a new statin or cholesterol medication as opposed to a whole new mechanism for lowering cholesterol. And then 40% were brought to market based on survival and quality of life uh, as opposed to surrogate endpoints, which is uh, another thing that's pretty standard with the industry. And then they used their, their interest rate for lost earnings on capital 7%, which is a much more common commonly used number for that for that uh, purpose. So really, I think that somewhere between $500 million and a billion dollars is probably how much it costs to bring a new drug to market, but way, way less than the $2.6 billion. So how much are they making on these drugs? Well, Dr. Prasad and Dr. Milan Cody took this a step further. They looked at those 10 drugs and looked at how much money they earned either through the direct sales or through acquisition in the first four years on the market. That number, $67 billion. The R&D costs, $9.1 billion. So, they made about $57 billion in the first four years. Remember that drugs on, on patent often continue to make money for 15 to 20 years. What this means is that creating new cancer drugs is obscenely profitable and the bar for quality is extremely low. My goodness. The final thing, does price actually reflect value in any way? Meaning, do the drugs that work better cost more? No, they don't. The FDA approves cancer drugs based on increased survival, as well as surrogate markers like disease-free progression or the ability to shrink a tumor. Now, from a patient standpoint and from a doctor's standpoint, the survival is going to be the most important and the other two are going to be much less important because those don't always correlate with what the patient actually cares about, which is staying alive longer and feeling good. Prasad and Milan Cody teamed up again, looked at 51 consecutive drugs approved for 63 purposes. This is what they found. Drugs that shrank tumors, meaning they utilized a surrogate endpoint, had the highest prices. 
and there was no correlation between how well the drug worked and the price of the drug, meaning that if a drug kept someone alive for 10 months, it was not necessarily going to be more expensive than a drug that kept someone alive for one month. Holy cow. So just to recap, from 2002 to 2014, 71 consecutive solid tumor cancer drugs provided patients an additional 2.1 months of life under ideal conditions. They cost, on average, $100,000 per year of treatment. Their quality-adjusted life years were often as much as half a million dollars. The drug companies were making money hand over foot on these drugs, and prices in no way reflect the value received by patients. I hope after hearing about that first chapter of Malignant, you realize just how broken our system is. Just how big of a problem we have to overcome. All the people that are making obscene amounts of money on these cancer drug pipelines are going to fight tooth and nail to not have their golden goose taken apart, taken down. But if we want to do right by the American people, and by that I mean our friends, our family, our loved ones, we're going to have to slay the beast. I wish that this lack of value was only specific to cancer medication. But I can tell you, working in healthcare, that the poor quality and the high price extends well beyond the cancer sphere and has poisoned all of healthcare. I want to thank the frontline healthcare staff for all the hard work you do. Not only do you work in systems that don't support you, not only do you bust your butt every day trying to take care of patients with fewer tools and less help, but on top of that, we are the ones who get called out for this. We're the ones who get yelled at about the $100,000 bill the patient received from the hospital or the drug they took. We're the ones who hear about all this. It's not the executives hiding in the back rooms of the hospital that get chewed out about us. It's us. The people that also get just totally screwed over any time we utilize healthcare as far as what we get charged. Thanks for joining me today. Check out that book, Malignant. It's worth a read. And everybody, keep your heads up. What we need to do is fix the system. To do that, we may need to break the wheel. Signing out. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Full Scope Podcast. You can find a lecture summary, key points, and any references on our website, fullscope.org. Additionally, this is the official podcast of Wonder Medicine PLLC, a for-profit medical clinic located in Boise, Idaho. As Carly and I own the clinic and draw revenue from it, we thought we should uh, disclose it as a conflict of interest. Disclaimer alert!
It's a trap! The Full Scope podcast was designed and created for educational purposes only. It is not intended to diagnose, treat, or provide clinical knowledge specific to the care of any actual patient or population of patients. If you are in need of medical advice or treatment, contact a physician. The views and opinions portrayed on Full Scope are Dr. Brandenburg's. They do not represent the views or opinions of Wander Medicine Clinic, any of the academic institutions mentioned on the Full Scope podcast or website, or any of the hospitals which Dr. Brandenburg has or currently works at.